I can't think of a, a better way to start off my sermon in this kind of an atmosphere. Stand with me for a moment. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others. Somebody say others. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also, again, here it is, to the interest of who? Somebody say it loud. Others. Look not on the things of yourself, but also on the things of others. And have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. What was the mindset of Jesus in this world? What was his mission? He did not come for himself, but he came for others. And today I want us to pray before we get into the Word of God, that God would open our hearts and that we would leave here on the same mission that Jesus came on. Amen. Thank you, Sister Connie, for sharing your need. We need to care about others' needs. Thank you, Brother Charlie, for encouraging us. We need to encourage others. Thank you, Malcolm, for leading us. We need to lead others. It's about others. Come on, can we lift our hands and pray right now in the name of Jesus? God, we pray the sovereign will of the Lord be done in this house. And that you would speak in this place today, God. Let your anointing settle in. Let your glory come in. And God, mobilize us to be the church that you call us to be. In the name of Jesus. And everybody that believed it, would just say amen? amen. God bless you. You can be seated. He had not always been wealthy, but when he became wealthy, because he had a heart of gold. His name was Abraham, and he lived in Poland, and he owned a small retail shop. And although he didn't sell a lot, he sold enough to provide for himself a modest home. A home that was always open to strangers and to the down and out. One day, a holy man came by his house, and he noted his spirit of hospitality and graciousness, and he prayed a prayer of blessing over Abraham. And like his namesake in Scripture, God began to prosper this man in his home. God began to bless what he was doing. His shop suddenly grew busy. He had to expand. He grew busier. He diversified and grew even a little more. And such was his newfound wealth that he decided to build a beautiful home. He had many servants, and no longer did he need to show uh, kindness to people, though he had his employees give money to those in need. His most prized possession came to be a floor-to-ceiling mirror that covered an entire wall of his house. And the mirror reflected many of his possessions, but few were allowed to see them because few were invited into the home any longer. Until one day, the same holy man who had blessed him returned to Abraham's house. Abraham spent quite a while showing his guests all of the many blessings and possessions that he had since received. And he finally arrived at the crown jewel, this huge framed mirror that sat in the midst of his house. The holy man asked, Abraham, he said, is it true that the mirror on the wall and the window looking out on the street are both made of glass? Abraham said, yes, that's that's true. The holy man continued, well, what is the difference between the two? 
Abraham said, well, the mirror's back is covered with silver to reflect. And the holy man said, so you're telling me that silver can prevent you from seeing the world and cause you to only see yourself. Abraham was struck in his heart. His life had once been a window. He looked upon the needs of others and cared about others, but lately his life had been more like a mirror. Too much self, too much stuff, not enough others, and not enough sacrifice. And so the rabbinic story says that Abraham had the mirror removed from his wall. And in a corner of the mirror, he took out the proper utensils and a dozen or so items. And he began to scrape away the silver from the corner of the backing of that mirror. And he deliberately marred the mirror by removing the silver from it so that one corner was nothing but glass. And then he took this mirror and hung it back on the wall to remind him that when we think we see, we don't really see until we are moved by the needs of others. Here I've come to preach to somebody today that the secret of a successful life is not merely found in having a winning personality or attending the right schools or even in perseverance. I want to tell you, it's not even in being blessed by God, because if you lean your ladder against the wrong building, you can climb all that you want. You can go as high as your ability will take you and never arrive at the place that you wish to be. So you have to lean the ladder in the right place. And what is the right place? I've come to preach to you today that the right place is not the ladder of self-ambition. It's not the ladder of self-centeredness. It is the ladder of seeking out and serving others. Philippians 2.4 Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things, somebody say it with me, of others. Of others. If we're not careful, our lives can be diminished to a small self-centered vision that blesses no one else, that helps no one else, that builds no one else. And I'm here to tell you that great churches don't merely exist for themselves alone, but great churches exist for others. They serve others. They love others. Great people don't build their lives around the totem pole of I, me, mine, myself. But great people extend their lives and make their lives available for others. And so let's start out today with the criticism made of Jesus in the midst of his crucifixion. The unbelieving mob hurled one accusation after another at him. Uh, the, he, and the Bible says that he opened not his mouth. They, they spit on him and mocked and scorned him. And he, he didn't even say a word. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth against him. But in the midst of their insults, they almost stumble onto the truth. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-two, the Bible says he saved others, they said. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. Matthew says that even the two thieves that hung beside Jesus were hurling the same insult at Jesus. He saved others, but himself he could not save. He saved others, 
but himself he could not save. And I've come to tell you, they had it half wrong and they had it half right. Yes, he saved others, but they were wrong that he could not save himself. The Bible says that he could have called 12 legions of angels. He could have called all the hosts of heaven. He could have stepped down off of the cross and brought an end to the cosmos. He could have ended his suffering and pain right then and there, but he did it. And I want to tell you why he did it. He did it because he gave his life for you and for me. Not for himself. Not for what he could gain from it. But he gave his life for others. So yes, he saved him others. But himself he could save. But he chose not to. And I feel the spirit of preaching here today. <laughs> The proper words are would not rather than cannot. He saved others, but himself he would not save. He would not do it. I'm talking about a Savior that he said all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. He has command over all of heaven and earth and could have brought an end to the cosmos and ended redemption's story right then and there just to escape his pain. But the Bible says he humbled himself and he became obedient even to the death of the cross. Why? Because there was a joy set before him. It was so that people could be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of the cross. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for others. God is passionate about others. He's passionate about others. He saves others, even to the point of refusing to save himself. And that, that's what the crowd gathered at the cross said. And that's also what the townspeople of Fairborn, Ohio, said of another man years ago. The story goes like this. The Denver-based Sabrejet team were performing their aerial aeronautics before an amazed crowd that day. In their trademark routine, creating a fleur-de-lis in the heavens, one of the jets began to tumble out of formation. Colonel Walt Williams watched in horror as the plane piloted by Captain Johnny Ferrier began to tumble towards the crowd of horrified onlookers. The colonel turned his plane to race towards Johnny's plane. And over the radio, he said, Johnny, bail out. Johnny, bail out. Your plane is going down. And he could have ejected. He had an ejection seat. He could have bailed. But he answered with a signal to the colonel, a tiny blip of smoke, indicating that he had heard the colonel, but he was trying to take action. Twice more, the command came from the colonel. Johnny, bail out. Johnny, bail out. And twice more, tiny bits of smoke puffed from the working engine. Command acknowledged, but I'm trying to take action. Action. The people on the ground saw out of the out of control plane streaming towards them. The crowd watched in amazement as at the last minute as the plane suddenly was diverted and crashed a few hundred yards away, killing the pilot Johnny Ferrier and leaving a large crater in that empty space. In an interview later with a uh, elderly spectator. They tearfully told the surviving pilots the plane was headed straight toward us. It was headed right at us. And for a second, we looked right at the pilot 
through the cockpit. And we saw him throwing himself against the side of the plane, trying to work the jam stick away from us. And that's why he crashed over there. In deep humility, the old man whispered, this man died for us. He died for us. A few days later, after the tragic accident, Johnny's widow, Toll, was given his personal effects that he had placed in his locker before flying his final flight. And in his billfold, she found a folded piece of paper. The words were those that he had learned while just a Christian young person attending a youth camp. And the words were simple. It was just, I am third. I am third. I am third. The reporter asked her, what does that mean? And she explained that Johnny, just as a teenager, had gone to a youth camp and given his life to Jesus. And at that youth camp, they had had a theme that the preacher had preached, that God is first, others are second, and I am third. And as a young teenager, Johnny devoted his life to live that way. I put God first, I put others second, and I put myself third. And so Johnny died the way that Johnny lived. I'm here to tell somebody today that if you want to know what the abundant life is all about, make it your mission to save others. Make it your mission to make sure that somebody else finds the healing that they need. That somebody else finds the hope that they need. That somebody else finds the deliverance that they need. That somebody else finds the Jesus that they need. Between these two brackets of God first and myself third are the all-important others. And we've got to learn to live through the brackets, loving God and loving others. So intertwined are the two that John said, how can you say that you love a God that you cannot see if you cannot love your brother that you can see? That's how intertwined our relationship with others is with our relationship with God. God says you cannot claim to love God if you ignore and care nothing for others. It's so wrapped up in our faith and who we are and who Jesus is that the two cannot be separated. Hear me today. That the Bible says this. It's not that we are known by our best sermons. Uh, it's not that we are known by our slickest programs. But Jesus said it this way. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. How would they know your mind? How would they know you're like me? It's when you stop living for yourself and you start living for somebody else. Amen. And so great lives are committed to two things. First is the great commandment. To love God with all of your heart. Somebody say it with me. With all of your soul. With all your mind. And with all of your strength. But he didn't stop there. He didn't say the, the second is slightly underneath it. He said, is, excuse me. The second, I can do it. Brother Jeff, I'll switch. It's always good to have a backup. Said so the second is like unto it. What does that mean? It means that the two markers of devotion towards God 
and participation in His church is that I love God with all of my heart and that I love others as I love myself. You see, if our life is filled with the personal pursuit of God but is missing fellowship and service to others, I'm here to tell you that we have missed the point of Jesus' mission. We've missed it. We are living little lives and we're missing the greater vision that God has for us. Because we are not just called to God. We are called to others. We were created not just for God, but we were created for others. How many of you believe that Jesus lived the greatest life of them all. He lived the greatest life of them all. Do you remember the verse of of the Scripture where Jesus said that He must needs go through Samaria? It was was not just a a slight desire. It was needful for Him to go to this place that nobody else ever went, that nobody wanted to go, but in Him there was a compulsion that I've got to go through Samaria. Why? Why, Jesus, do you want to go to this place that the Jewish people consider unclean and unholy? Why do you want to go to this place that generally Jews avoid going to? And the Scripture tells us why. Because He had a rendezvous with a woman who had given up on life. She was hurting. She was broken. And this outcast was the key to the Samaritan revival. Why go through Samaria? Because Jesus was focused on others. It dominated his attention. It commanded his schedule. It led him at 12 years old to stay behind in Jerusalem and engage the teachers at the temple. I I love this scene of Scripture. Because when Mary and Joseph come back and say, what are you doing? Jesus, matter of factly, a little 12-year-old looks back at, at his parents and he said, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? It's not about going home for me. It's not about retreating back to my PJs and my couch. Oh, I'm, I'm touching somebody today. I know you guys, some of you, you get home, you jump into your PJs, you don't want to see anybody the rest of the day. Jesus wasn't in a hurry to get home. He was in a hurry to minister to others, to make his life available to others. Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? What is the father's business? It's to seek and to save that which is lost. It is about others. It's not about me. It's not about my loss. It's not about my desires. It's about others. God spends little time with people who are not passionate about others. A man once prayed like this, Lord, bless me and my wife, my son John and his wife, us four and no more. A childless couple prayed, Lord, bless us too, and that will do. An old bachelor prayed, Lord, bless only me. That's as far as I can see. I'm here to tell somebody today that we limit our lives when we get too involved with the mirrors and we forget about the windows. When we get so used to looking at what God has done for us and how God has blessed me and how God has blessed my home and how God has blessed my finances and God has given me this and God has given me that. I've come to encourage somebody today to set the mirror aside or to pull out the scraping materials and go to work on your life and begin to scrape away the silver. Scrape away whatever it is that distracts you from the mission that God made you for because you were called and 
created not just to be ministered to, but to minister to somebody else. You were called and created to come into community with somebody else. That means that someone else's healing is in you. Somebody else's deliverance is in you. Somebody else's hope is in you. Somebody else's peace can be found in you. But we've got to get away from the mirrors and start looking back through the windows. A few years back, I heard a preacher tell the story of a man who went to work day after day and looked at the computer screen. Anybody have this job? You go and you look at a computer screen all day. You go home. You get on your phone. You put your phone down a few minutes and you watch the TV. Our life has become dominated by screens. But this man had a job that he works long hours, tedious tasks with a computer screen right in front of his face. And he he noticed that his vision began to dim. Every time he went back to the eye doctor, his prescription became worse. And finally, one day, he was exasperated with it, and he said, Doc, what is going on? Why is my vision so much worse than it used to be? Why why can't I see like I used to see? And, And the doctor asked him about his job and asked him about his life. And he began to tell him how he worked eight to ten hour days staring at a computer screen. And so the doctor uh, said, I think I can fix it. And the man said, well, what, what is it? Do I need a stronger prescription? Do I, do I need eye surgery? What do I need to do? And he said, you have a condition called myopia. And what you need to do is I'm prescribing for you to go find somewhere every day, sometime every day, where you can see a vista, a view. Go to the highest spot in town. And he said, I just want you to take some time to look at the vista every day. Just exercise your vision and stop looking at stuff that's close to you and start looking at things that are not so close to you. And so the man did as the doctor said. He went to this hill day after day and he found that his eyesight began to grow clearer. That his vision began to grow sharper because the natural state of the eye, eye doctors agree that since the 1970s nearsightedness has skyrocketed. About the same time the computer was born. And the only, they, they have no explanation other than that humans have now become accustomed to looking at things that are close to them all of the time. So that we are losing the ability to see things that are not right close to us. And so I'm echoing what the doctor said, is we've got to learn to exercise our vision. Because if we look at ourselves and our stuff and our conditions, if all of our prayers are about ourselves and what's going on with me and mine and, and this and bless that, that we begin to lose the vision and lose the ability to see that we are the answer for a hurting world, that we are the answer for people that are in need. Somebody say, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. He said, go look. Go spend some time exercising your vision. And so perhaps today you've been too focused on self. Perhaps your ladder has been leaned against the wrong wall. But I'm telling you, it's not too late to lift your eyes. When you start seeing again, you're going to start seeing some stuff that you didn't notice. When you start seeing again, you're going to start seeing that there are people all around you that are lonely. You're going to start seeing that there are people around you that are hurting. You're going to start seeing that there are people around you that are in need. The same people that you tell yourself they'll never hear 
what I have to say about God are desperately searching, desperately seeking, looking for something. That, that's why they run to alcohol. That's why they're at every party that happens. That's why they're living the way they're living. is because in their soul, Brother Mahoney preached about it so well last week, in their soul they're thirsting and they're hungering and they don't know what it's for. And when you begin to look again, you'll begin to see that there are people all around you that you have access to. I'm not talking about somebody you've never met. I'm talking about people that you know. I'm talking about people that you see every day. I'm talking about people that sit a cubicle or two over from you at work. I'm talking about people that you see see in the store when you walk in day after day that there are people around you that are in need of something. You'll begin to see what Jesus saw in Matthew chapter 9 when he cried out, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He was in the middle of a crowd of hurting people, in the middle of suffering people. Matthew 9 says that Jesus went throughout all the villages and the cities teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the Bible says he was healing every disease and every affliction. And and as you can imagine, the crowds begin to grow thick. Because when they heard there was healing in Jesus, they began to come from all different directions. They, They began to make their way to Jesus. And the Bible says that in Matthew 9, Jesus is in the middle of the crowds. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to see what happened as Jesus found... Uh, uh, somebody and begin to minister to somebody. And when he did, the floodgates begin to open. And all of a sudden, all these people begin to come. And Jesus looked up from praying from this one, and there were ten more in this place. And he looked up from praying for this one, and there were twenty more. And all of a sudden, this multitude had come together and surrounded Jesus. And Jesus is praying and laying hands on the sick and, and healing them. And he looks up, and the crowd is too big. There's too many hurting people for him to do it alone. There's too many bodies for him to crawl over to reach everyone that's hurting. And so in the middle of this, Jesus' disciples are all around him. But he's the only one who's healing, right? He's the only one who's praying. And the Bible says that he, he says uh, in the middle of that, the, the Bible says Jesus said to his disciples, he turns to his disciples, and he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's plenty of people that have a need, but there's too many people who are not working in the harvest. Not involved. He said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors. And we stopped there, but look at Matthew 10.1. It says, so he called to himself twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. What did Jesus do when he began to see the needs around him? He began to commission others to reach others. See, this is the only way that the gospel, that the, the gospel of peace can reach people. It's if I get involved in what Jesus is doing. It's if I begin to participate in what Jesus is doing. If I begin to care about others like He cares about others. Jesus said it this way. He said, lift up your eyes for the fields are already white to harvest. I fear that too many times we fill our schedules with so many things that we are busy with. Listen, I've got two kids. They play sports. They go to school. They do Bible quizzing. We've got more than enough events to attend. I want to tell you, when I started Financial Peace University for our church, it wasn't because I needed something to do. We've got plenty of things to do. 
But God began to talk to me about what I was doing in my life and what He was doing in my life and said, you can share this with others. You can take others in your journey. Other people can be blessed by how I'm blessing you. Because what, like Abraham, sometimes we get into the mirror mode where we begin to praise God for His blessings, never realizing that God has blessed us so that we can bless. And God has made us a conduit. He's not called us to live like a mirror, but more like a window. Yes, He wants to bless you, but He wants you to be involved in what He's doing. And when you lift up your eyes... And I'm praying that's what somebody does. We're going to pray at the end of this service in just a few minutes. When you lift up your eyes, you're going to begin to see that there are people around you that you can help, that you can offer hope to. Has anybody found hope? Anybody found the hope that's in Jesus in this place? Wave your hand at me. See, I know what you're hearing, and what you're hearing is not what I'm saying. What you're hearing is... The preacher wants us to go lay hands on the sick and see them recover. And the preacher wants us to carry our Bible into work and preach a sermon. So you can do that. That's all right. We want to empower you to do that. But I'm not making a call for you to be an apostle like Paul was an apostle. I'm making a call for you to be a Christian like Jesus was. I'm making a call for you just to make your life available to somebody else. Because what you have to say, you know, it's amazing that, that he said the Holy Ghost will empower us to be witnesses. How many of you know that scripture? Acts 1 8. It says, After the Holy Ghost come upon you, you shall be witnesses. Notice he didn't say professors, he didn't say theologians, he didn't say uh, experts. The Holy Ghost will empower you to be an expert. He said, the Holy Ghost will empower you to be, somebody say it with me, witnesses. You know what a witness does? You don't have to be too qualified to be a witness. All you have to do is see something happen. And so what I'm preaching to you today is that all you have to do to make an impact on somebody else is open up space in your life to come into relationship with people and begin to share with them what God has done for you. Begin to share with them how God has touched and changed your life. Begin to share with them in the blessing that God has given you. That is the mission of the church. It's not about me. God has blessed me so that I can bring others in the community. And relationship with Him. And when you lift up your eyes, you're going to see people that need you. They need your friendship. They need someone to walk alongside them through their struggles. Amen? They need somebody to do life with them. David Bolin, uh, I'm proud of you. He's starting a shade tree mechanics group. Some of you are going to see that and say, what does that mean? A few months ago, David came to me and... uh, we began to talk about how God could use His ability to fix cars for the kingdom. And there was a group here from another church that, uh, that their van came and they broke down. It was POA. So we called David and David came up and helped him get their vehicle going. And amazingly, the Lord began to bless him. He didn't ask for any money or any pay or anything like that. But that week the Lord began to bless him. And he came back to me and he said, you know, I realize that God can use what I can do for him. So I want to do that more. So he started a group called Shade Tree Mechanics. David, you're going to be overwhelmed after this. But you know what they're going to do? Is they're going to come up here one Saturday a month. And they're going to help people who can't afford an oil change or a brake change in their car. They're going to help those in need. Those who want to learn how to do it, they're going to invite them to come along. And you know what they're going to do? Is they're going to do what they can do and share the love of Jesus Christ in that way. 
I'm calling it. Somebody's going to be one to God through Shade Tree Mechanics. Somebody is going to find hope in Jesus because somebody said, you know what? I don't need to just do this for me. I do it for me 40 hours a week when I go to work, but I want to do this for others. I want to make myself available for the kingdom. I want to make my life available for what God can do through me. And I want to tell you something, that when the church mobilizes in this way and the church begins to come into community, Acts chapter 2 tells this story. The Bible says they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Notice that three of those things involved each other. They prayed together. They got together. They worshiped together. And they believed together. And when they came together, the Bible says that they had favor with men. And God began to add to the church daily. What happened? When they began to connect with each other within the body of Christ and began to make their lives available to anybody and everybody who wanted to come to Jesus, all of a sudden the church went from about uh, 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 and the church began to expand daily because understand this we are better together God didn't make you to do your own thing show up here with this bunch of strangers once a week God didn't make you for that the Bible says one shall put a thousand to flight but two shall put ten thousand to flight when we come together and when we come into community and into faith and into prayer together, there is something exponential that happens in the kingdom of God. Somebody say we're better together. And so when you lift up your eyes, you're going to begin to see that there are people around you. I want our musicians to come. I'm coming to a close. We're going to, we're going to give a different altar call. We're going to pray together. I want to ask all of our community groups leaders to go ahead and be dismissed to their table. Stand with me. Stand with me. Stand with me. I'm going to close just in a moment here and we're going to pray together. All of our leaders are going to go. I'm going to tell you what to do before we pray. I want you to go talk to these community group leaders. I want to tell you something. We didn't start community groups at Christian Life Church because we needed something else to do. I want to tell you others is the heartbeat. You need others as much as they need you. You need others as much as they need you. Some of you are here today and you're hurting. You got nowhere to turn. You pray, God, would you just send somebody to help help me? I want to tell you there's people in this church who've been through what you've been through. If you're here and you're facing addiction, there are people in this church. They've come through addiction and won the victory. You need them and they need you. If you're facing PTSD here today, there are other, other men who have served and are facing that. They need you, and you need them. Does anybody feel the Holy Ghost right now? I know this is different. We're not going to flood these altars and cry tears. But today I'm trying to motivate you to walk back here and find other Christians to come into community with. Because when, the more we begin to look like the Book of Acts church, the more we will begin to see God do Book of Acts things. The more we make room in our life, it seems like fellowship, but what it really is, is it's spiritual connection coming together as one. I want to tell you, there's strength in numbers. I'm closing with this little illustration. When we lived in Flagstaff, we would go up to the Snow Bowl. Anybody ever been to the Snow Bowl in Flagstaff at the San Francisco Peaks? A beautiful place. Beautiful place. You can go up there and you can ride the ski lifts during the summertime. 
to the highest point of Arizona. And my wife and I would go up there periodically and we would go hike and take the kids, took family pictures there. But there was this one corner about halfway up the mountains that you turned on. It was called Aspen Corner. And I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. As you round the corner, you come upon this entire grove of quaking aspens. And in the fall, about this time, their leaves turn a brilliant yellow. Just a beautiful place. Thousands of trees. Thousands of trees as far as your eye. You can't see through them. It's just this beautiful place. I found something out about aspens. I thought, look at all those beautiful trees. Look at all those beautiful trees. I learned that aspens are actually the largest tree in the world. They're the largest tree in the world. I know you're thinking redwoods. I preached about redwoods a couple weeks ago. The Lord spoke to me. There's something better than redwoods. You see, aspens look like many trees, but underneath the surface where their roots lie, they are connected together. And it's almost impossible to get rid of the hillside of aspens because it's not many trees. It looks like many. It looks like many, but it's really one. And so there is a strength in numbers. There is an awesome ability to cover a hillside and begin to grow and spread. And it looks like many But it's really just one. Isn't that who we are as a church? It looks like I live my life. I live in my house and my home. But understand this, I'm connected. What happens to me matters to you. And what happens to you matters to me. And so today, I want you to bow your heads. We're going to pray in just a moment. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to begin in in your mind's eye to take the scraper to the back of the mirror and say, God, if I've been too self-involved and too unavailable to minister to others, if I've done that, God, God, I'm asking you to help me to open up my life. I'm asking you, Lord, God, to help me to be available to others like you were. And God, through it, that you would begin to give strength to the church, that you begin to give life to somebody else. God, that you begin to give hope to somebody else. God, that you begin to give strength to somebody else. Come on, today we're turning our mirrors into windows. We're lifting up our eyes and saying we're tired of looking at the things that are close to us. God, transform our hearts. Transform our minds. Transform our souls. And God, begin to mobilize us. Begin to mobilize us into community. So here's how I want you to respond today. I hope you're under conviction because I came for you today. I was coming after you today. Here's your altar call. You don't have to lead a group. We've already got leaders. But I want to promise you that if you will commit to show up to community groups, if you will commit to open your life to other people who love what you love and like what you like, that God will begin to minister through it and God will begin to give strength to you. Amen. How many of you believe that? How many of you believe that? Amen. Can we get a hand clap of praise? How many of you believe that? And so I want to invite you, before you go get your kids, quickly go find a table. Go spend your moment. Um, The kids will be there when you get them. Uh, Parents, if if you see someone with a kid in front, let them go in front of you so they can go get their kids. But we want to invite you back to these tables to come into community with the body of Christ 
and to begin to allow God to transform and shape your life. May God bless you. Amen. Please join us. There's some refreshments in the lobby. And we're going to do this drawing tomorrow after we have all the cards turned in. But go find your community group. Go connect with somebody. Go make room in your life for others.